I think Jordan, I can see Jordan now on the screen. So, uh, Jordan Goodman, thanks for uh, for joining us today. Yes. Good morning over here in Baltimore, Maryland. Nice to be with you guys. No, thanks for coming on, because obviously um, a lot of our listeners um, will probably know you from the uh, wellness policy on post-wrestling with uh, Mr. Waiting, but you've um, you've got a lot of things going on, haven't you? A musician, um, psychotherapist, leader in um, therapeutic drumming, um, lots, of, uh, lots of things to get into, because what I really did want to go in first, we'll go in... Um, on the wrestling side before we get into the rest of your career because you were also the uh, communications and branding officer for Ring of Honor. Obviously, Benno was um, a huge Ring of Honor fan back in the day. How mm. did that come about and what was your uh, what was your role within the company? Uh, how did that come about? So, look, I've always been interested ever since I was a little kid in a couple specific things, music and pro wrestling uh, most specifically. So, for me throughout my life, those have been the ways in which I've directed my energy. And uh, obviously those are the ways in which I've decided to engage uh, within career and artistry, etc. cetera. Uh, Ring of Honor was acquired by Sinclair, which is based out of Baltimore in 2011. So at that point I was paying uh, very close attention to the show, to the product, uh, but also going to the monthly TV tapings in Baltimore City. And by doing that, you know, I was just kind of paying attention, really with no uh, thought in mind of I'm going to one day work with this organization. If anything, I thought maybe I would share one of my beat well, you know, drum circle empowerment pro uh, empowerment programs with perhaps like their office or the roster. <laughs> but I was going to uh, their shows and, you know, like, I paid attention. Who are the people in suits? Who's the person taking tickets? Who's the person selling merch? Just to kind of like get a sense of what their organization may or may not be. Uh, and then maybe five years later, I think 2016, I was on a flight uh, from Fort Lauderdale going back home to Baltimore. And I saw uh, Joe Koff, the COO of Ring of Honor, uh, in line to get on that flight. Uh, honestly, I was sick as fuck and was about to uh, make a call to say, hey, can you uh, pick me up? I'm going to reschedule the flight to the next morning. I don't feel well at all. And but then I saw, you know, fucking Joe Koff getting on this flight. And I, <laughs> and I thought to myself, like, huh, like if you, whether you believe in like, you know, uh, serendipity or synchronicity or anything like that. Uh, I mean, this felt too much like a. Uh, like a golden opportunity for me. So I got on that flight. Uh, I walked past him. I introduced myself. I thanked him for what he provided to pro wrestling and ring of honor specifically. Uh, and then I had the audacity to ask if I could sit next to him. Uh, he probably thought what the hell did he just get himself into? Um, <laughs> but we chatted the whole flight, uh, not just about pro wrestling and ring of honor, but you know, the, the music work that I do and living in Baltimore and, you know, we developed a relationship for the next year and a half until I felt like I was in a position to have proven enough trust and credibility uh, in my relationship with him to, to hit him up, say, hey, I want to meet. I want to contribute at a high level uh, for your company. And four months later, I essentially was uh, the guy responsible for anything related to branding, communications and marketing uh, with a full-time position and something I never really thought was 
possible or even desirable. Um, I never thought like fucking pro wrestling would pay my health insurance, but uh, in the fall of 2017, that was the reality I was living for the next couple of years. I think that, that's interesting because like Ring of Honor, you know, like branding of Ring of Honor, like they kind of like the best thing Ring of Honor's got going for it in some ways is its history. And then in some ways, the new surrounded tech it's got is also its history. Like I would say up until that period, I think what exactly was Ring of Honor was kind of a, a question a lot of people would ask. And I think they probably it would be fair to say, you know, in a lot of like the early 2010s, I did have a, like a lot of like branded issues i would say like were were the things that you know you could maybe you know, shed light on that maybe you pitch to job like okay this is what you guys are doing wrong this is what you need to lean into more this is this is you know how to you know pitch yourselves as a brand going forward like what was like the lay of the land when uh, when you came into things um from my perspective and and look part of me waiting a full year and a half to even pitch something concrete was i needed to take the time to really study not only what Ring of Honor was doing, but study what the entirety of pro wrestling, in addition to just live sports and entertainment and television and live events, et cetera, uh, was doing at the time. And in doing so, I was just trying to find open field for myself, figure out where could my, uh, you know, sense of aesthetic or skill set and so on uh, possibly be of value to the company. Um, mm. I, you know, I thought really, I mean, Simple things as a platform like Instagram not really mm. being taken advantage of even in 2017, but also just from a branding perspective, you know, I would watch their TV product and I'd see four different Ring of Honor logos in one shot. <laughs> yeah. um, so like like low hanging fruit like that, but also one of my bigger missions while I was there uh, was to help elevate the genre of professional wrestling to help uh, the market and not just pro wrestling fans, um, but advertisers and um, people that may not have sampled pro wrestling before, other people in the media outside of the wrestling media. Part of my mission there was to help elevate the genre of professional wrestling, um, to help people appreciate it for its artistry, to help people appreciate it for its athleticism, and to help people appreciate it for the emotional storytelling that takes place both in the ring and on the microphone, and whether the talent is guesting on a podcast, and so on. Um, you know, when I think about most people's perceptions of pro wrestling, like, I'll think of, I, I don't know, like, a, a professor at school, and maybe they find out for the first time that this guy who's you know, on the path to becoming a licensed psychotherapist is also very into pro wrestling, so much so that as a child, I trained and performed as a pro wrestler. Mm. And most people will be like, oh, like, that's fake, right? And to me, it's like, well, no shit, like, but honor is real. And then for me, part of the mission was like, how can we storytell what is real about pro wrestling, whether it's the sacrifice the talent make in the gym and traveling away from their families or the dedication the fans have waiting four hours in the freezing cold to uh, be first in line for a meet and greet and so on. So uh, one of my biggest missions among many there was to do my best to to elevate the perception of the genre of pro wrestling. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned perception there. I mean, what do you think, like, you know, obviously 
you know, you, you left uh, that position at Ring of Honor and they're in a funny old position, I think, as far as the wrestling world goes right now. I think the, the perception is, and you'll hear this slight that, oh, it's, you know, Sinclair aren't interested or, you know, if they only spent a bit more money, they they could have been AEW when, I think in reality, Ring of Honor is a, a well-run business that pays its wrestlers well and, you know, it creates a consistent product that's a consistent living for, for a lot of wrestlers there. I mean, what would you say, like, Ring of Honor's place in the world of, of wrestling is uh, at this point? Um. Well, look, it, it really come, it, 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 it's easy for anyone to, uh, uh, you know, armchair quarterback uh, how they feel Ring of Honor should uh, be running their business or being able to say, hey, I'm going to measure whether they're being successful or not. Uh, mm. No one, including myself, even though I clearly have had much more insight into the inner workings of that organization, sure. um, who's to say whether Ring of Honor is successful or not, except for a handful of people at the top of not only Ring of Honor, but of Sinclair Broadcast Group. Uh, Ring of Honor, you know, has its own purpose. Um, and perhaps it has its own purpose depending on who you ask within that organization. Mm. Um, look, uh, they've been uh, under Sinclair's ownership for a decade now. Uh, if it wasn't working out, then clearly, you know, they could do something else with it. Um, mm. I think the pandemic really was helpful uh, for Ring of Honor because a hard reset, uh, in my opinion, was necessary, especially with the just the transitory nature uh, since since I left uh, shortly after the MSG show. Um, but you know, it's it, they they were needing to find a new identity. Uh, much mm. of what was making Ring of Honor work when I was there, uh, got shifted to, to AEW. Um, mm. and, and, and really, I mean, NXT as well. I mean, in, in many ways you look at NXT and it was built on a, a few generations of not only ring of honors talent, but totally. the style and presentation of the genre of pro wrestling that ring of honor was known for, uh, at the time. Um, look, who am I to say for me, it was I was never that interested at the time or even after the time of really like uh, getting into the business of Ring of Honor. Uh, mm -hmm. But but what I can say, look, everyone can could agree uh, if there was destination viewing uh, cable, Netflix or otherwise, where uh, everyone and look, and they're even doing that. I mean, they're doing these these watch parties at 7 p.m., uh, People may not know it, but you can watch it for free on Fight. You can watch it for free uh, on their website and, and their app and so on. Um, I think we can still all agree that if there was like a uh, something that felt a bit more elevated than perhaps like watching wrestling on the Internet, uh, mm. then it would help create a bit more cohesion as far as the social, not only the social experience of everyone watching at the same time, but I think the perception of it being uh, an elevated product, uh, that would certainly help. And but mm. I could I could list maybe a handful of other things. The leadership knows that, and they've known that. But for certain reasons, it hasn't been in their best interest, with whatever options were available at the time, to do it. What I can mm. say is that those running the business on the business end know what they're doing from a business perspective. Mm. Yeah, I, that always comes across. I think, you know, 
from the outside. You know, again, the fact that they're they're still here, you know, and they're and they're still like you mentioned the pandemic era. I think they were a, a shining star, an example of how to run a business during during that period. I think if yeah, you dig in, you can you can absolutely see that about Ring of Honor. But I mean, I was going to ask before we move on to to other subjects. I mean, you mentioned you know the, the MSG show being uh, towards the end of your your tenure there. I mean, can you speak a little bit about about that experience? I mean, I think a lot of people would say that was the uh, the peak of that run of Ring of Honor. So yeah, not a not a not a bad time, I suppose, to uh, to make your exit. But you know, certainly, I imagine would be a, a highlight of uh, of your time working with the company. Absolutely. I mean, look, I I'm the first to say I rode the perfect wave there, joining a you know in in mid 2017 and uh, leaving a few days after the MSG show. Um, but I was also very clear up front that working in pro wrestling in that way wasn't necessarily at the time like that wasn't my long-term goal i mean i wasn't mm. looking to to do it for 20 years um i wanted to experience pro wrestling at the highest of levels and i felt like i had a lot uh to contribute um and i feel like in large part i did that for the time that it felt good to continue doing that for um that whole run-up to msg was one of the busiest periods of my life uh because not only did I have a full-time uh, responsibility to Ring of Honor, but I never stopped being a psychotherapist. I never stopped being a music educator. I never stopped doing my beat well drum sessions. I never stopped um, being in a rock band. And uh, my band had put out an album and we did a, an album release show uh, like three or four weeks before the MSG show. And being the guy who kind of has a, you know, a, a tendency to understand communications and branding. Like in my band, I'm the person doing all that as well. Um, let alone the the incredible just uh, extra commitments leading up to this MSG show, including uh, producing and uh, facilitating an entire fan festival the day before at MSG's Hulu Theater. Um, it was one of the busiest, uh, oftentimes stressful, a stretch of of weeks of my life. Uh, there were a lot of uh, fires that you know it was my responsibility to put out. Um, there was just mm. a, a it was a lot. Uh, I think back on it now, and all of the negative stuff, I I, it, I don't feel it. Um, all of those stresses were in the moment, and I handled it to the best of my abilities. I, I think back on it now. Uh, what a fucking joy to. <laughs> to like have a hotel room in my name uh, next to the most you know famous arena in the world uh, and to put on a suit and walk into that building knowing that it had been sold out for nine months and to represent one of the premier pro wrestling companies in the world in addition to collaborating and, and working with all of the New Japan talent. Um, what a joy, like what a dream come true, literally a dream that I never thought would even be possible, even starting with Ring of Honor uh, just a couple years prior. Um, what was especially enjoyable about that night is that I had set up that once the bell rung, my responsibilities for the next four hours would be done. I handled a lot of stuff uh, you know, before doors and even after doors before the show officially begun, in addition to uh, everything the day before with the festival, but uh, Braden and Davey from Up Next, uh, I asked them to be my guests 
uh, I got them tickets. They sat with me and the rest of the Ring of Honor office. And once the bell rung that night, I got to be a fan with my friends. Mm -hmm. And knowing that I was going to give my notice the next week, uh, I knew that was the way I was ending my run at Ring of Honor. And I felt really proud of myself because like, I know what it's like to get burnt out on music and for music uh, to feel like a job. And when I entered Ring of Honor, I went into it with the mindset that no matter how stressful uh, and perhaps unfair or unkind uh, pro wrestling may be to me from a business perspective, I always wanted to protect my fandom and my passion for the genre of it. And it felt good knowing that the end of my run at Ring of Honor, I got to experience the product as a fan with my friends. Yeah, that's the thing. And I think a lot of people find jobs, especially when you, you like you said, music or wrestling or something mm -hmm. you're really passionate about. And, you, you, you know, like you said, your fandom can sometimes wane. So it's good that you got out at the right time there. Um, you mentioned Braden and Davey there. Was that how you uh, became involved with post-wrestling through them and then obviously through waiting? So if, if Braden's listening to this, he'll get a chuckle because it's kind of become a running joke. Uh, just the amount of times he and I through their shows have 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 told the story. So my first. Uh, well, so even before meeting uh, Braden for the first time, I've just been a fucking fan of John and Way for uh, close to 10 years at this point. Uh, I would listen to their podcasts. I would listen to, to the Laws radio show on Sundays. You know, I used to, in my band Reindeer, uh, for a period of like a year or so, just as a running joke, the only shirt I would perform in was the I'm a Way Ting guy shirt. Wow. So like, <laughs> yeah, like I, I always fucked hard with, uh, with what became post-wrestling. Uh, when I was working for Ring of Honor, my first show was in Buffalo, and it was part of the Global Wars tour, which was one of those four-day uh, shows or, or four-day tours, uh, you know, with with New Japan talent. And uh, so this is my first time, like, working a show. Really, did not know what my responsibilities uh, would be uh, that night, and a few minutes before, I was told by the uh, the lovely, uh, wonderful, legendary uh, Gary Juster, that, uh, Jordan, you're gonna be handling like press. And okay, uh, Uncle Gary, I'll fucking figure it out. And I go introduce myself to those that uh, showed up for interviews or access or whatever they were hoping to get. And the first person that I, I, I met when I asked, hey, what's your name and, and who do you represent? Uh, he said, Brayden. And I immediately said, like, the lol or what's next or whatever his, his podcast was at the time. And I think he was freaked out. Like, why does the Ring of Honor media guy know who I am? <laughs> and I was freaked out, like, holy shit, I'm like day one on the job. And now I'm like already meeting people that I'm fans of. And... So from there, I was like, all right, well, I need to make sure that Braden can chat with uh, the the entire Bullet Club. And, like, we became buddies since then. And then, like, Wei and John and I had, uh, you know, we'd be in touch on 
Facebook Messenger or whatever, especially mm -hmm. once I got the, the job there, knowing that I could be of value to them. Um, but uh, so, the, yeah, that's really, though, the, in 2017 where I met Braden for the first time. Um, and then as many of us do, we just kind of kept in touch on, on social media. Um, during my time at Ring of Honor, I never really wanted to be a quote-unquote public figure, even in this, like, podcast space. Yeah. Um, it just and, and honestly, like, I was scheduled to be on the post-wrestling Christmas show a few years ago. Uh, and then I, I bailed last minute and I explained to John, I don't know with how much detail, but like, I wasn't particularly happy with what was going on at ring of honor that week. And I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to be a guest on their show and, and not show up in full integrity by kind of bullshitting and acting like everything was like super awesome. You know, and I also didn't want to just talk fucking publicly about the inner workings of Ring of Honor either. Um, <laughs> so I said, thanks, but no thanks. And then, you know, a couple years later, I end up, uh, you know, co-hosting my own show on post wrestling with the guy whose face used to like, you know, be on my chest as I performed uh, in front of audiences. Yeah, that's a, that's an odd one, isn't it? That yeah, <laughs> that's quite, that's quite funny. Um, so, in terms of someone who's maybe not listened to your guys' show before, obviously you talk about a wide ranging number of, of subjects, but um, wrestling isn't hardly touched on there at all. It's more about sort of like lifestyle advice. Would you say that's a fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I have another podcast that it's in a bit of hiatus right now called Chaka Croissants that. We started at the very beginning of 2017, and it's very similar to the wellness policy, and I'll explain why. So Chalka Croissants, uh, my two co-hosts, uh, my brother Justin, who's a musician, in addition to a dietitian and a, a, a personal trainer, and uh, a drummer named Matt Halpern. He's the drummer of a band called Periphery, who's a Grammy-nominated uh, progressive metal band that tours the world. Yeah, and and even just as a drummer, he's he's a guy who has his own signature snare drum and is on the cover of drum magazines and so on. And uh, you know, we he's he's been a, a lifelong friend of my brother and I's. And the the podcast Chocolate Croissants ostensibly is for a music community and for musicians or uh, fans of music, uh, especially rock music. But we don't talk about music, really. And we've had many musicians, uh, some you may know, you know the band A Day to Remember or, or Beartooth or an amazing uh, guitarist Pliny or even fucking Donnie Wahlberg from New Kids on the Block. Wow. You know, so we, we speak with many musicians, but we don't necessarily talk about music. I think we're more interested in talking about uh, what what did it take for this human being to become successful as a musician? So, so much of what we chat about is, you know, mental health and wellness more generally and creative entrepreneurship. And so when Wei and I last year uh, were developing a friendship and then got to the point of exploring the possibility of a podcast, uh, for me, the vision was let's just do Chaka croissants, but instead of for a music community, let's do it for a pro wrestling community. Mm -hmm. So, you know, most of the topics uh, will be connected to uh, mental health uh, and wellness in, in some regard. And, 
sure, we can use a wrestling metaphor if we'd like, or wrestling puns, or uh, references, etc. But it's but the cultural hook, the social hook, is that we're all wrestling fans. Mm-hmm. Um, but who wants to just talk about wrestling all the time with other wrestling fans? Maybe some right. people do. I don't know, but they're probably not listening to the wellness policy. No, I think it's good, and I think certainly uh, we've noticed, certainly especially in the last couple of years, and especially with the lockdown and stuff, that people, especially you know men who might not have, who might have kept it all in, are, are talking more about you know the anxieties they have and stuff. And I think you know it's a really good podcast in terms of that respect. On you know you're not alone, and and people are dealing with all this stuff. I, I enjoyed the one you did about social media as well, and especially talking through the documentary from Netflix. Thank you, brother. Yeah, uh, that was quite enjoyable and uh, definitely well received, especially uh, just given the the interest in in all the callers that we had at the end. And that's another thing. When Wei and I were discussing this, I told him I want this to be a community endeavor. So what makes uh, the podcast unique from others is that we record them live on Zoom and it's available live for all uh, post wrestling cafe members. Um, what I especially like as well is that then the, the episode is available uh, to anyone, uh, not behind the paywall. Uh, but I wanted it to feel like a conversation beyond just, uh, you know, a, a dialogue between Wei and I. Um, because, look, I don't know what wrestling fans or people that would find post-wrestling. I, 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 I could guess, but I don't know for sure what actually resonates with them and what's going on in their lives. And... Uh, for me, I wanted it to feel like uh, a bunch of people sitting in a circle, hanging out, talking about some important stuff. Not unlike uh, when I'm invited to share at a conference or, or business, and we do group work, and we'll we'll make you know drumming experiences. But the point isn't the drumming. The point is to use the drumming uh, to to bring us to some sort of uh, deeper, more meaningful outcome. Uh, not unlike what I do in the group therapy that I run um, and much of the work that I do out in the world with human beings. So I feel like we've done a pretty decent job of capturing that, uh, especially given just the levels of uh, vulnerability and expression that many of the listeners have been willing to share live on the air. Yeah, so you're certainly doing a, a fantastic job so far. But just before we get into sort of like your... Um you know, the group therapies you run and, and the Beatwell organization. Um, you mentioned music a few times. Is that still something that's um, a large part of your life? Um, did you, um, how did it go with your band? And, you know, you, you mentioned sort of like releasing records and things like that. How far did you sort of make it as a musician? Um, I, I look at music as far as doing it a bit more professionally in many different phases. So I've been playing in rock bands like literally since I was a child, like I didn't really play video games growing up or or sports really, um, at at least in ways that really lit me up. Uh, What I did on the weekends with friends, I'd get together and we'd bash on our guitars and drums. And that was what I always loved to do. Um, So I've been in a handful of of different bands uh, throughout my life. Um, And look, I've, I've shared stages with uh, I'm sure many musicians that that you've you know or most of you have heard of, whether it's you know uh, Jack Antonoff uh, of Bleachers or 
All American Rejects and uh, Girl Talk or Twin Shadow or All Time Low or Rogue Wave. Um, you know, mostly mostly rock bands. Uh, and I've put out records on uh, labels and I've toured most of the East Coast and I've performed, you know, on like big festivals, stadium stages in front of a lot of people and headlined my own shows, drawing well over a thousand people numerous times. Um, so like from a being a, a guy in a rock band, uh, I feel like I've lived my dream hundreds uh, of oh, times, yeah. if not thousands of times. Um, when I started my program uh, to, to get a master's in clinical and counseling psychology, uh, I was still doing the band thing, but I was also looking for uh, a bit, let's say, safer or more predictable kind of path as it relates to long-term income and career stability. But what I found early on was that I was watching myself trying to fit in. And I was sanding my edges. So, I mean, for instance, uh, like I, I, I like had a dumb fucking haircut. I was like starting to wear like collared shirts. I was just mm. trying to like assimilate to what I thought it meant being a mental health professional. And <clears throat> I realized that if I don't incorporate who I am as a musician and more specifically as a drummer, then not only would I be setting myself up for a less desirable life for myself, but I would also be withholding a lot more value and generosity that I could share with clients or the, the world more generally. And when I fucking Googled uh, like drumming and stress reduction or something like that, and I found evidence-based research showing that a specific group drumming protocol had all these significant effects, um, reducing biological stress, uh, reducing, um, you know, uh, observed uh, behaviors and certain emotions and and feelings of bonding and creativity and so on. Uh, I realized, oh wait, I can be a drummer, but not just as someone who performs and 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 makes records. But I could be mm. a drummer within a mental health context. I could be a drummer within. A, um, a podcast context. And, and really, like, rhythm is universal. Rhythm is the universal language amongst all human beings. And the, the, the concept and the function of rhythm is within and without everything that exists. And that really changed my worldview. And I mean, I could really even say that when I spent my time at Ring of Honor, like, I did it through the lens of being a drummer, and that's kind of how I like most effectively uh, perceive the world. I mean, even if you watch a wrestling match, like the dance between the talent and the ways in which they interact with the audience, especially, or even the beats of producing a live wrestling TV show going from like, uh, let's build here and peak here and then go to commercial. And then we come mm -hmm. back from break and like, it's a bit down. Like everything that I just listed, there's a rhythmic quality or aspect to it. And in the grad school program, that's when I really started to unlock the universality of, of rhythm and, and how I could use it. Um, given the, you know, the, the skills that I've cultivated over a lifetime as a drummer.
Yeah, because, I mean, you have, you've just noted there, obviously, you discovered, you know, that there was a lot more to drumming than just, um, you know, being in a band and things like that. And obviously, you have this organisation, Beatwell, now, where you've got a range of demographics and, and different people from different walks of life. Do you find that people, I don't know, do you find that people are, re- are quite receptive to this um, form of therapy, I guess you could call it? Uh, by the end of experiencing it with me, yes. Uh at first, some people are fucking stoked and ready to dig in, and there's a lot of people that are very hesitant for many good reasons, um, especially when I'm working with in a more professional setting, and typically men that are middle-aged, um, there is a, a, a significant more resistance than, say, I'm going to do it with some kids, or I'm going to share it with, uh, I don't know, people that are a bit older, and, you know, as as people get older, I think they realize, like, fuck, I don't give a shit what anyone thinks about, like, what I'm doing or what I look like doing it. Um, but I think a lot of the resistance is people are afraid of, quote, messing up. People are afraid that everyone else is going to look at them and judge them negatively. Uh, most of us have this belief that I don't have rhythm. And it's like, well, you have a heartbeat and you're talking to me and I saw you walk over here. All of that was natural rhythm. And so for me, the the my job really up front is to create conditions of safety where I can help reframe the the understanding or the expectation of the experience where we're not here to perform. And and I realized most people's first experience playing music uh, was as a child in like a music class or a music lesson. And typically they're being asked to like play notes written on a page in a certain way. And if they don't do it correctly, then they're wrong. And like that's not what play is. Actually, the next wellness policy episode we're going to do at the end of the month is around the concept of play. And... In, in, in the ways in which we introduce music uh, in our culture to, to the populace, we're not encouraging play. We're encouraging uh, this quality of performance. And it's not unlike how most of our education is, where it's like you have to do it this way. And if you don't do it this specific way, then it's invalid and you're wrong and you get a bad grade. And like, who would then be that open to really exploring their own natural musicianship? So for me, I, I really try to create the condition of safety of, look, we're here to play together. That's why we call it playing music. Uh, there is literally no right or wrong. Uh, you may feel like you mess up at some point. If you do, fine, like smile and keep going. And like, we're just here to to relax and have a good time and and see what happens without expectation. So in the ways in which I facilitate my programs, uh, you know, I, I'd say I'm pretty close to you know 100% success rate of by the end, people uh, loosening up and and I think allowing themselves uh, to look. Not everyone's going to love it, uh, but but I think uh, just about everyone ends up uh, being a bit more open to a greater possibility that music making can provide. I was going to find that um, Jordan just to follow up with that. Sorry, Martin. Just to like you know during this you know horrible period we're all living through these uh, last eighteen months. Like, have you noticed that are people 
more open to, to that type of therapy? Is there more demand for it? Are people, you know, maybe even more in tune with, you know, their, their sense of self and, the, and you know, the, the struggles that, you know, a lot of people have gone through these last 18 months, you know, more time, more solo time to, to think things through and be, be left with your, your own thoughts. I mean, have you noticed that difference in, uh, in your brand of therapy? So I haven't facilitated a drum based program since, you know, mid March uh, of right. 2020, just because the nature of my offering is we do it shoulder to shoulder with strangers and everyone's using and sharing physical instruments. Hmm. So in the past month, I've gotten uh, numerous inquiries about, you know, coming back into to, to the field and and starting to share it again, which is very encouraging. Um, also, you know, at some point we could talk about, you know, the Beatwell professional coaching, which was a pivot of mine during the pandemic as a way to continue working with with people and, and not just uh, within the state of Maryland through a clinical context. Um, mm. What I can say is that the field of psychotherapy uh, has exploded. Uh, there is far more uh, demand than the supply of uh, trained therapists out there right now. Right. Um, so yeah, clearly, I think the pandemic, as far as just the the social isolation, the uh, valid anxieties and fears and and sadness that, uh, accompanied it, uh, both because of an actual virus and then the economic economic turmoil because of it and so on. Um, uh, I also think there's just a greater acceptance of mental health counseling and therapy and just the nice. understanding of, hey, you know, we we know about eating better food for our bodies. And we know about like exercising and the benefits of that. So like we understand physical health and I understand why it's easier for us to understand that. Like we can see it, we can touch our physical self. But you know, I, I think just as we continue going on as a society, uh, we're understanding more about the validity and importance of taking care of our own uh, mental and emotional, uh, you know, health and well-being. So, uh, and even when I started this uh, over 10 years ago, look, my parents were skeptical, my professors were skeptical. Uh, a lot of them couldn't see a vision for how could I build a career uh, using drumming experiences, whether one-on-one -on -one with a client or with 10 or a thousand people in a group drumming context, like how could I make that a viable business through the lens of, mental health and well-being and community building. Uh, but I understood that this has been used for thousands of years in virtually every culture. In our Western culture, in, in a consumerist culture like we live in, uh, our conceptions of music and drumming was really like, uh, just it was a an art product. Like we pay for a song, we pay to go see a live performance. And so I knew going into it that branding and, and marketing and communications would be my biggest hurdle. How do I, quote unquote, sell what human beings have known all along as a survival mechanism? How do I sell that to a 21st century Western slash academic slash uh, uh, corporate culture? Um, and like I've done it. 
And I've also trusted that with every passing day, there would be more acceptance of it because I assumed it would just follow the, uh, you know, the, the, the trajectory of yoga in, in the West. Um, yoga was hippy dippy and counterculture as fuck in the 90s. Uh, and then eventually, like every community had a yoga studio. Uh, many have multiple yoga studios. Um, but again, to, to the point earlier, I, yoga hit first because we began relating to it as a physical exercise first. Uh, and then I think that became a Trojan horse to help people understand the importance of the quality of their breath, the ways in which uh, a yoga practice could also have emotional, uh, mental, spiritual uh, benefits. So I just assumed something like uh, a drumming intervention or just even something uh, as general as uh, meditation as a practice. I just always assumed it would come. It's a matter of time. Uh, but, you know, like Wayne Gretzky, like skate not to where the puck is, but skate to where the puck is going to be. Mm. And that was my plan. And I figured at some point when meditation or drumming empowerment work uh, hits critical mass, Maybe by then uh, I'll have a track record of doing this work effectively and consistently for a decade. And that's where I feel like I am at this point. Did you, in terms of setting it up as a business, um, I'm assuming you tried getting some funding and stuff. How receptive were people in, in, that re in that respect in terms of like having to describe what it is you do and how you do it? So the way I, I kind of launched it as a business, I honestly did it, guys, for free for over a year. Wow. And... I did it that way because who was I to say without any experience, mm. pay me, pay me 500 bucks to come share a drumming program with the community that you, that you serve or that you lead. So I did it for free uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, I did it to one, figure out what the fuck I was actually offering to figure out what I was good at, to figure out what resonated or not with different populations, to figure out the specific values that I was offering and then could communicate for a dollar amount in the future. Uh, so I was doing it as market research. I did it uh, as experience. And then I also did it just to you know build relationships and get testimonials. So I would ask, hey, I'd be willing to come serve your community of 30 people for free for an hour, but my my hope or expectation is that you, the person I'm talking to, and or the person that would be in a position to hire me in the future would be present, ideally participating. And if you found the service to be of value, perhaps you could offer me a testimonial as well. So that's really what I did for, for a good while, just to figure out uh, not not only all that, but do I even like this? Is this even like a business I want to put a ton of, of effort and energy into building for myself? Um, and then in doing that, you know, I, I've been able to figure out, okay, this when I work with this specific population, uh, then these these things tend to work. When I work with kids, I have to start here because I need to help get them on board to a certain point before things can be uh, more optimal, uh, for example. Um, and now as I've done it for over uh, 10 years, I mean, I've done it with, with so many diverse populations, whether you break it down by um, you know, physical or emotional 
uh, ability, uh, age, uh, you know, uh, uh, income. Uh, I've done it with, uh, you know, different faith-based communities. I've done it with people that are blind or deaf. I've done it with uh, nuns. I've done it with Holocaust survivors. I've done it with corporate executives. Hmm. Um, and there's, I've gained insights as to working with various populations, but I, I think the key theme that I keep coming back to in the work is that we're all human beings and our similarities far, far outweigh our differences. And even the differences, uh, that's our strength. Just like every participant has a different instrument with a different sound and they have full permission to express themselves uh, however they want, as long as the intention is to help the group succeed. Um, I mean, that's ultimately the metaphor for society. It's, you know, a, a diverse society is a healthy society as long as we all use our differences of perspective and differences in interest and skill set uh, in through, through, you know, as long as we use all that through the lens of how do we help the collective in, in a way in which we can honor who we are in positive ways. You know, I, I feel like if that's uh, a, a model or a lens through which all of us operate, then I, I think a, a healthy, prosperous society could be the only result. No, that's I definitely agree with that. Yeah, and you're certainly, um, you know, talking um, some great stuff. But I was just thinking when you were saying all that, it was like, obviously you've said you can't do, you haven't been able to do anything since March. What sort of, like, ad advice would you give to people as we are opening up? And, you know, obviously people are going to start be becoming anxious about, you know, being around a crowded, pe crowded people again. Certainly, especially here in the UK, you know, we're all all rules are off, like, um, after next week in terms of, like, you know, mask wearing and social distancing and stuff. And obviously people are going to be anxious heading back out there, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I would say, first and foremost, please be kind to yourself. Like, what we all have collectively gone through the past year and a half uh, from many different uh perspectives, whether it was a, a health perspective, a mental health perspective, a financial perspective, um, just the uh, division of culture and media, like it's been really brutal and it's okay to own that. So I would say if you're feeling anxious about uh, reintegrating back into society, uh, that judging yourself, criticizing yourself, being unkind to yourself, uh, would be incredibly unproductive because there's so much that we're already having to contend with, uh, let alone having to contend with our own, you know, inner criticism. So, uh, look, trust your intuition, trust your gut. Like there's no right or wrong way to do it for some people. Uh, they're going to be much more cautious, but like some people may have more significant health issues. Um, and so on. So, so who are any of us to judge? Uh, as far as it relates to, uh, you know, whether a vaccine or or a mask or anything like that. Like, I mean, my my hope and everything as 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 I get older, I, I realize either uh, comes back to to money and education, and even still with education, a, a much of it is is about the money. Um, you know, my hope is that we can have a, a more uh, educated populace uh, able to, you know, 
engage in critical thinking and analysis and so on, uh, really as it relates to uh, science and the science around being healthy, uh, you know, around a virus and a pandemic. Um, but I, look, I, I think if if I'm going to offer one concrete uh, uh, thought for for someone to take from this specific conversation, uh, it's to be kind to yourself, um, because this has been a uniquely historically uh, difficult time for all of us, uh, no matter how good or bad we or others think we've had it. No, I think that's perfect advice. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah, definitely I listen think, to Jordan there, yeah. I do think, yeah, like th to that point, like I think that's something I've kind of wrestled with a bit. Like I think, you know, when things were particularly bad, it's easy to kind of look at it and go, oh, well, you know, I've got it bad, but there's all, there's all, you know, there's people in worse situations, but you can't cheat, you know, you're cheating yourself there really by saying that. It's like just because other people are in a bad time, that doesn't, invalidate your bad time it's mm. it's been hard for everybody hasn't it and you've you know you've got to like i say like, like jordan says there yeah take it easy on yourself and that can be tricky right because look it, it does help to have that perspective oftentimes um mm. especially if we're prone to uh becoming more easily depressed or becoming or we're just more typically cynical or pessimistic or negative just in nature so oftentimes it is helpful to uh, compare, uh, look, I mean, others have it way worse. So maybe we can deal and, and try our best to, to persevere. Um, being grateful for the stuff that is going well is incredibly healthy as well. But I think that starts to become unhealthy or unbalanced when we're not able to acknowledge or validate any of these uncomfortable uh, or negative uh, experiences or feelings either. Absolutely. No, it's definitely. Um, it's been fascinating talking to you, Jordan. Um, I just wanted to get something in before we leave. Obviously, you do some brilliant work and, you know, you've got um, a great mind for everything. But I just wanted to bring up, because obviously you mentioned you are from Baltimore. Me and Benno, huge The Wire <laughs> fans. Um, is, is, is that a show that you were keeping up with? Uh, yeah, after the fact. So I watched the series straight through, uh, m maybe in 2013. So it's definitely been a while uh, since I've visited the series. But uh, but I also wasn't, you know, watching uh, week to week or season to season as it was, you know, premiering on HBO here. Um, but yeah, I I said at the time, and and uh, I think it still holds true for me. It was the best TV series I've ever watched. Mm. Is it um, a representation the, it's, it's, of Baltimore? Uh, I think it's it's a fair representation of certain uh, communities or lived experiences of Baltimore. Um, it certainly is not the entirety of Baltimore, and I think in many ways uh, Baltimore has been uh, kind of been painted with uh, a very broad stroke just because The Wire was, uh, you know, it, it, just uh, such a beloved series in entertainment. Um, but look, I mean, especially at the time I was watching it, you know, I was working as a mental health counselor in inner city schools and then doing Beatwell programs, you know, with uh, community centers in and the, the kids that I was working with, uh, 
their lived experience was not unlike a, a lot of the kids featured in the series. And so I think some of the takeaways for me was one, this idea of like psychological social boundaries where you could be living in a community, especially a dense community like a city, and literally the difference of one physical block or street can create an entirely different like sense of society where there's different rules of engagement and just different um, like expectations or levels of resources, et cetera. Um, and, and to me, that was really fascinating and infuriating, quite frankly, of just how fucking socially segregated uh, the city of Baltimore is. Uh, but most major cities and, and, and communities, at, at least in, in the United States, um, but, but really like the, there were, there were a handful of things. I, I remember one episode so clearly where I, I forget one of the kids in season one, it, it may or may not have been Wallace, but I remember he, he went to the Eastern shore, uh, which would only be like a two hour drive from Baltimore city. Uh, and maybe he was staying with a grandparent and by doing that, like, you know, he was, it was the first time he got out of the city. And so for me, what, what helped just to create more understanding about some of these people's perspective, one is that like a lot of like these characters uh, or, or people, residents, all they know is the handful of blocks of not the city of Baltimore, but like their neighborhood or community within Baltimore city, like East Baltimore and West Baltimore as, as kind of shown in the series, like are two very different worlds for uh, certain groups of people that live there. And so for me, it, you know, I've clearly had the privilege of uh, growing up uh, north of the city in Baltimore County, but, you know, throughout childhood, like performing and going to shows and like going throughout not only Baltimore City, but D.C. and Philly and New York City. And so for me, it was just more normalized to uh have lived experiences uh, far outside of the, the the stretches of my neighborhood. But what really stuck with me from the one particular episode was that I think at some point or in some way, the character knew that it may have been much like safer on the Eastern shore away from, uh, you know, cultures of uh, gangs and, and drug dealing and, and, and things like that. But all he wanted to do was go back to it still knowing that it was uh, probably not in his best interest, but like that was his concept of home. And being in nature was like more uncomfortable just because of the stillness and the quiet. And to go back to, you know, the Beatwell work, it was just a completely different rhythm. It was much, you know, slower. And for him, that felt deeply uncomfortable and not desirable. Um, and then without spoiling anything, uh, you know, uh, things didn't turn out like that well going back. So, uh, yeah, I, I fuck with The Wire. I love The Wire. Uh, it is, uh, I, I think it, it worked because they got a lot right. Um, but in no way is it entirely reflective of Baltimore, which is a city and a community in which I desire to stay throughout uh, university and I desired to stay post-university and I continue to, uh, to desire not only to, to live and work and create and play here, but 
um, you know, I, I used to work for a, or write for a, a cultural uh, magazine and an online website in uh, for Baltimore and, um, you know, very engaged in Baltimore uh, arts and culture and community because, you know, I, I, I fly the flag of Baltimore high and um, I think it's one of, especially, especially as a, a, a coastal city, like a, a city on the water, but even more so a, a, a city and a community that uh, just rooted in arts and culture um, with with a grit to it and an, and an absurdism to it and a chip on its shoulder. Uh, I would put the the arts community and, and the cultures of, of Baltimore uh, up against any across the world. It's 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 world class in, in the most literal sense. Yeah, it's definitely good to hear your sort of like insider's perspective on it. Because I think, yeah, certainly over here in the UK, you know, with The Wire and then Louis Theroux has made a couple of documentaries following the police around in Baltimore. Yeah, it doesn't get painted in the best light and it is good to hear, you know, like with most mm. cities, I suppose, you know, there's two sides to everything. But um, Jordan, I'm, af- I'm afraid we're going to have to call it there. Um, you know, it's been fascinating talking to you. But um, is there anywhere where people can read more about, you know, what you do with Beatwell or like where they can listen to the podcast with you and Waiting? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to just thank you both. Uh, this has been quite fun. And, uh, you know, it's awesome just to to connect with both of you. And I hope to chat more in the future, uh, whether publicly or in private as well. Um, the Wellness Policy, it's the show that I co-host with Wei Ting. It is part of Post Wrestling. And we go live uh, next Thursday, July 29th, 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And, and again, if you are a Post Wrestling patron, uh, part of the post-wrestling community, you can join us live on the 29th at 1 p.m. Eastern on Zoom. Uh, you'll get a link uh, in your inbox for that. Um, if you're not part of the post-wrestling uh, cafe, all good. The show will be available for free the next day uh, on your podcast app uh, or YouTube. If you want to connect with me, uh, Twitter, Instagram is good, at Jordan Beatwell. Uh, and if you want to learn more about the uh, the career and business coaching work that I offer, um, I think especially those uh, that live outside of, uh, you know, the Baltimore region, that would be the best way to experience my work. Uh, BeatwellCoaching.com. Jordan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, obviously spending, uh, you know, an hour. It's, it's not an insignificant amount of time. You know, thank you so much so, for uh, taking time out of you. You know, obviously you've got so much going on. So thank you so much for spending your time with us.